0: And welcome to the Get a Beer and COVID-19 episode of Slate Money, our guide to the business and finance news of the week. This is a reference, of course, to what has been going on in Texas, in Florida. People have been going out for beers. They've been getting COVID. The number of cases is spiking. We are going to talk about what that means for the American economy. I am Felix Hammond of Axios. I came to New York 23 years ago on an H-1B visa, I then moved to an I visa. All of this past history has given me an insight into the alphabet soup of visas. This is going to be helpful in the second part of the show when we talk about visas and immigration. Emily Peck of HuffPo. Hello. Have you any immigrants in your life?
1: All of my grandparents came here from elsewhere. Yes. So that's my thing.
0: And Anna Szymanski, you, according to this show, because we've already recorded it, have been here so long, that you have no entrepreneurial spirit.
2: <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Although I do have a lot of immigrants in my life in other ways.
0: Anna has a good job working for Breaking Views. If she were entrepreneurial, she would probably start up a German fintech. We are going to talk about Wirecard, <laughs> which is a crazy German fintech, which just went bust and just how long it took to go bust. That is coming up and... I really hope that you are a Slate Plus member, because if you are, you will get to know what happens when you combine all of the great tastes of Spax and Tontines and Bill Ackman all into one. Um, what would you call it, Emily? You're, you're, you're squiggling your nose at this. Anna
1: called it a Sunday sprinkled with Bill Ackman's tears. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds so gross.
0: All of that coming up on Slate Plus. Money.
3: Hi. but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: So 8,942 cases of COVID in Florida in one day. This is a single-day record. We just saw what on earth, Emily, is going on. The second wave seems to have hit us before the first wave even ended.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, we're seeing COVID come on really strong in the states that opened earlier. I mean we're seeing it Texas and Florida in particular. We know Texas basically reopened I think only 28 days after it closed or something like that and now hospitals in Houston are nearing capacity in in their ICUs and we're seeing these records of new cases every day and I guess president Trump and Vice President Pence have tried to argue that the increase in cases is just because of more testing, but that's not really what the data is showing. We're seeing coronavirus is still here with us. We may have succeeded in flattening the curve here in New York, but in other places, you know, the curve is just still rising. And so the question now for Slate Money, I think, really is what is this going to mean for the economy? We know that the extra unemployment benefits are set to run out in July, which is you know in a few days.
0: Well, at, at the end of July. At the end of July, right? So July twenty-six, I think, is is the last week that people will get that six hundred dollar extra check. So that's a right. month away. But it does seem clear that if the six hundred dollar checks were designed to get us through the crisis to the point at which we could you know reopen again. We are not going to be through the crisis come July 26, given the fact that the 9,000 cases we saw in one day in Florida, for instance, are going to turn into a whole number of hospitalizations and then hundreds of deaths down the road. Those deaths are going to be coming in July. And the shutdowns we've already seen in Texas a re-shutdown, like a second shutdown, a backtracking, and I'm sure that will not be the last of the re-shutdowns. So given that we are acutely aware of the economic effects of shutdowns and given that the necessity for shutdowns in most of the country seems to be greater now than it was in March because the crisis is worse in most of the country now than it was in March. It seems pretty obvious to me that the economic effects are going to be, what, nearly as bad?
2: I mean, I would say, first, on the one hand, you could potentially make the argument that this will make it more likely that the government will offer more stimulus. In the same way that a few weeks ago when we had better than expected, um, unemployment numbers, we kind of said, oh, no, maybe that'll mean the government won't act. So I think you can kind of use the same logic now and say maybe the government will. So I think that's one thing. I also think that while you may have a number of states kind of halt their reopening, I don't necessarily think you're going to have a bunch of states that are going to really start locking down again. I don't think that's a good thing, but I think it's unlikely
1: I don't know. I mean, as we were taping on Friday, both Florida and Texas announced they were going to shut down bars, right? And that would obviously have an impact on unemployment. And I could see them doing more shutdowns, which would have more of an impact on unemployment. Plus, just the ambient vibe of an increase in cases is going to leave people wanting to stay home, which would have an effect on unemployment also. So all that seems to be signaling to me that like unemployment may have gone down a little bit, but is still incredibly high. And now there's a a pressure to increase unemployment, you know, in these states.
2: Oh, oh, no, I agree. I'm I'm not saying that I think it isn't going to this isn't going to have an effect. I certainly think I just don't think you're necessarily going to have like the same level of effect that you had in March. That's just what I'm saying.
0: So my question is, like, or the way i put this in in my newsletter this week are we going w are we going reverse radical this is a reverse radical for those of you who um aren't experts on glyph names a radical is basically that weird shape that you think of as the square root sign so think of that sort of backwards in terms of a large drop down and then a small jump up, which we have seen, there has been a recovery. uh, And May was surprisingly good. We um, just got some pretty good retail sales numbers from May and, and personal consumption numbers from May. So we had an uptick in May. But then I think the question is, what happens when these secondary restrictions start getting put in place, when the bars start getting locked down again, when people start getting afraid to leave their houses again, when people start cancelling holidays again, do we see a flattening of the recovery, which is what's known as reverse radical? Or do we see a second dip, which was what's known as a W-shaped recovery? Which one... Is more likely to happen.
1: You can't discount the effect of the stimulus and the CARES Act on kind of boosting people's income and helping make a recovery even somewhat possible. We know that poverty rates were reduced. We know that um, personal income went up because of all that. I think if you combine, if the federal government pulls the rug out from that stuff, at the same time, people are more scared of going out because of resurgence in cases. I think. I think it's W-esque time.
2: I agree with that. I I mean, I think if you had a kind of double whammy of, you know, the government acting very stupidly, which is entirely possible, then, yeah, I mean, I think that that would be really, really bad. I mean, honestly, I think even if you didn't have a resurgence in cases and the government just completely pulled and didn't replace the kind of increased unemployment with anything else, I think you would have really like a negative impact in jobs numbers. In terms of what I think is most likely, I mean, I do think it's so hard to make predictions when everything is, is changing so quickly. But, you know, I think it's really, it, it's it's going to depend on the government in action. And it's also going to depend on, like, I just know, like, talking to people in California, it seems like the desire of people to be locked down has decreased so much that I, ch- and, and again, I'm not saying this is good. <laughs> in fact, it's probably bad. But I just wonder if we're going to see the same type of just complete reduction in economic activity that we saw previously.
1: That's a good point. And I also think we know more now about how COVID spreads to be right. smarter about the shutdowns. Like shutting down bars is a no-brainer from yeah. <laughs> everything we know. Like that is, right. where you, that is where you basically go to get a beer – and COVID nineteen because everyone's <laughs> all tightly packed in together. No one <laughs> yeah. social distances. You're drinking, so you know you're more chummy. And I mean, it's it's bad, but like other things we know aren't as bad. Like here at the Peck household, we don't wipe down our groceries anymore because you know we were going literally insane trying to do that. And we know we like I I go running outside now mask free because I don't live in the city and there's like no one around. We know like outdoor dining is probably okay like there's just you can be a little more free now because there is you know uh, people know more and we know masks are really effective but what of course is worrisome and and maybe people have already seen the um videos of the people in florida saying like just like bonkers stuff about why they can't wear masks that i won't repeat because i don't know felix looks confused but it's this
0: video no i mean I, I was looking at a tweet earlier <laughs> from this guy who was explaining that if you wear a mask, what that means is that you're breathing in your own CO2, and that causes COVID symptoms. And so really, yeah. it's the masks that are causing the COVID.
1: Yeah. So- or that
2: apparently it was going to stop God's breath or something. There, there was something <laughs> there was something about that.
1: <laughs> it's it's freedom. It's lack, uh, something about freedom. I don't know. But the, anyway, I mean, if people could get on the mask bandwagon, that would help too. And then we could have more stuff open I think at least while it's well it's really hot in the places where the cases are surging it's hot and people are going inside so that's a little tricky too.
0: I feel like that collective decisions of thousands and thousands of school districts around the country are going to be one of the strongest determinants of economic activity because as we know it's very hard to get work done or to leave the house when you have to look after small children. There is an enormous demand, certainly from teachers of younger kids to say like, even if I managed to talk to them electronically once I'd got to know them at the end of the school year, there's no way I can introduce myself to a new class at the beginning of a school year. But obviously by the same token, If those kids are all giving each other diseases and then bringing those diseases back to the homes and then spreading the disease that way, that's not going to be great for anyone.
1: There's so much to say about the school thing, because I think if schools don't open like they would normally open in September, I think the shutdown will have been career-wrecking for like a generation of mostly female workers. I mean... I think uh, women around the country are like at a breaking point right now. I mean, parents all are, but, but I think women in particular. So that's like one aspect. And I think you see in the unemployment numbers, you see um, female unemployment higher than male unemployment. And we don't like definitively, we can't definitively say it's because like schools aren't, you know, we're closed, but there's definitely, I've spoken to people anecdotally who could be working, but can't work. So um, there's that. Then there's just like, kids like really losing out academically and disproportionately affecting minority kids and poor children. Um, And that's just pretty devastating, like long term effect. And I think there has been uh, like some child care centers have been open this whole time and there hasn't been any spread like it's been pretty responsible. So that's kind of encouraging, I guess. I I don't don't know. If the schools don't open in the fall, I think it's a disaster.
0: The one tiny little bit of good news so far, if there is any good news going on COVID related right now, it's that the number of deaths is continuing to decline nationwide. The number of cases is going up, but the number of deaths is going down. And we don't know whether that will last and whether the spike in the number of cases will cause a spike in the number of deaths on a sort of lagging basis, which seems like it easily could. But it's also possible, I think, that there is a little bit of an indication there that we have got better at making sure on some level that the people who get the disease are not the people who are most likely to die from it. And that would be positive.
1: Is that also because the people getting it now are tending to be younger? And younger people are. But that's less the point.
0: Yes. Exactly. That yeah. that the, right. the the older people who died in the first wave often had never even heard of COVID by the time they contracted it. Now anyone who's immunocompromised or elderly or anything like that is well aware of the precautions that they need to take, and there's a good chance they are taking those precautions. And while that doesn't provide hundred percent protection, it certainly provides more protection than they had when they were just going about their lives normally.
1: That feels hopeful. One thing I was, you raised, I think in your newsletter, Felix was long-term, like as we see the um, case rate go down in Europe and like the U S is like this pariah now, you know, they're going to not let Europeans come here this summer, like long-term, what are the effects going to be for the U S of the, the fact that we really haven't contained coronavirus, you know, our, are we, is this like a long term problem for us, you know? So
0: there's definitely the a medium term sort of, let's say it's going to be a year and a half, two years until there's so many Americans have been vaccinated that there's effective herd immunity and the rest of the world is comfortable with having Americans come visit. What I'm seeing is these like expanding bubbles around the world. So, There's a lot of talk, I think it's already beginning to happen now, about travel being allowed just between New Zealand and Australia on the basis that neither of those countries really have much COVID, so they can start mingling together more. The Schengen group, and in fact, the entire European Union is beginning to sort of do the same thing. They're saying, well, all of us have basically got our countries more or less under control at this point, so now we can allow travel within Europe. And then the way that the Europeans are talking about reopening on July the 1st, is to say, if you're coming from a country which has less COVID than the EU, then that's okay. So that would be Vietnam or China, certain other countries, we will let travellers in from there. And then I think, or certainly Australia or New Zealand, right? And so you're going to see these bubbles sort of expand. And the low COVID countries are going to create, something approaching an international economy between themselves. And the United States is going to be excluded from that international economy. And the United States is going to be one of the infectious outliers, along with Brazil and probably India, which the rest of the world will shun, and where it's going to be very difficult for Americans to travel on business or to travel for tourism or to travel at all internationally. And that's going to be extremely harmful for the economies of those countries that are left out of this, you know, nascent economic recovery.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this will maybe potentially kind of lead us into another segment where we're going to talk about visas. But I just think that, you know, what we're seeing now is, you know, this somewhat breaking down of globalization, we're seeing trade numbers declining, we're seeing immigration declining, all of these things. And in the US, you know, if what we're doing continues, you could potentially see that kind of hypercharge. We're like, nobody wants to come in here. It's it's harder for us to do so many of the things that have enabled our economy to grow for so long.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you.
1: Call ClickGrangnger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones
0: who get it done: So let's do that. Let's have a segment on visas because we have news this week that the Trump administration has decided there will be zero new visas going to foreigners under uh, three, well, more than three, but three main categories, Js, Hs, and Ls. And I am not going to go into the gory details about the differences between Js, Hs, and Ls, but suffice to say, they go mostly to people from Mexico, India, and China. And Donald Trump issued a proclamation basically saying, all of these people who would normally come to the United States on one of these visas With the intention of working well that's a job and americans need those jobs so we're going to ban those people from coming to america after all and then americans can get the jobs instead and let's keep america great um emily do you want to explain why that logic is utterly backwards
1: i'll try one of the reasons america is great is because we have immigrants who get to come to this country and help us be great. so And especially in some of these, the H1, uh, I don't know.
0: Yes, the H1B.
1: Allowing smart people to come to this country and help us innovate stuff is a net positive for the country. Keeping those people from coming here, and maybe they'll go to Canada or somewhere else, is good for Canada or somewhere else. And like a net negative for our country. Immigration is good for innovation. It is good for entrepreneurship. It is good for our tax base. It is good. It is
0: good. It is good if, for if, job creation. Like and it's good, immigration yeah, creates jobs. And so that that's the, the main fallacy there. But as, you, as Anna pointed out, it's not clear that that many people even wanted to come to covid (laughs) central usa right now right anyway um we are seeing this insularity
1: and the pretext that the trump administration is using this time around though it's been trying to do this since the beginning is that it's because of coronavirus to keep us safe which is just a joke because the trump administration has done almost very very little let's say to keep us safe this whole time so it's the the one thing that
0: donald trump claims that he did to protect the USA from coronavirus was ban flights from China um, which obviously had very little practical effect but we are still banning flights from China if you're if you want to fly from China to the United States basically you can't if you want to fly from Europe to the United States basically you can't those bans don't seem to be going away anytime soon and while there are definitely strong cases to be made for the existence of travel bans You're absolutely right that it's the one thing that the Trumpists really like because it aligns with their prior desires. And anything else that you might want to do, like, say, contact tracing, they have no sort of ability to implement.
2: Yeah, I mean, I also feel like Everything the Trump administration does is for their reelection. And clearly Trump thinks that the winning thing he had in 2016 was his anti-immigration stance. And so that is why essentially everything we've seen in the last four years, his solution to every single problem is to ban immigrants, essentially. And when we're thinking about job creation, I think sometimes people will think of it as like, oh, we'll have a smart person here and they'll work at Google and that's great. They'll make Google better. But it's also like they'll also create Google. Like, I mean, it's not just like this is how we create new companies. You know, look at our largest, most successful companies. They're all first and second generation immigrants. And it's not like we have all of these engineers who are just sitting around the sidelines because, you know, like – Google's deciding to hire them from another country. Like, we actually don't have people with the skills that a lot of these companies need, and that is why they use these visas.
0: And and that's actually a really good point, that it's not just the immigrants who are coming in and starting jobs and creating companies like Zoom, which was created by a Chinese immigrant and has created lots of jobs in America, but they're also having... Kids who start companies like Google and Apple, you know, which were both started by children of immigrants. And that entrepreneurial spirit really does seem to align quite astonishingly with immigration trends.
2: It makes sense. I mean, like, if you're if you're gonna take the risk of going to another country, (laughs) like you probably are someone who is, you know, more aligned to be an entrepreneur. Whereas like, once you get to my generation i feel like we're like eh, whatever we'll just work for a company <laughs> like we're, we're too lazy
1: also i just wanted to underline like one of the groups of people blocked by the um trump's new whatever demand is au pairs which is crazy because we're already like dealing with childcare issues in this crisis and he's blocking these people from coming over that could help working parents have some childcare at home so that's just wild to me
0: the J visas. The J visas get much less press than the H visas because the H visas have large lobbying arms fighting for them. But there are very few large lobbying arms fighting for J visas. But they're, in fact, in many ways, as you say, even more important.
1: There's no au pair lobby.
0: <laughs> the really crazy ones <laughs> is the pair. L visas. <laughs> the L visas are literally just corporate executives who need to move from like Munich to New York or whatever for any reason. It's not like there's a opening in New York, which someone else could fill, like some American could fill. It's just that person who already works for the company needs to move to a different office to do some job. And those are being put on the list as well. It makes no sense to me.
1: And this hasn't gone into effect yet, though. It's going to be fought over. So it it's not officially going to happen.
0: So there will be a fight over it. You're right. But on the other hand, it kind of has been in effect since March. Like no visas have been issued since March. All of the consulates and embassies have been closed down. It seems very unlikely that the State Department will allow those consulates and embassies to reopen and start issuing visas, even if the courts decide that this executive order is illegal or whatever. I just can't see those consulates and embassies around the world opening their doors and saying, hey, come and get your H-1Bs. It just doesn't strike me as Very likely.
1: Just another way that the Trump administration is screwing up our economy long-term in the name of I don't understand what.
0: Keeping America great, Emily.
1: Right. Seems great, doesn't it? Seems super (laughs) great.
0: (laughs) Great. I, I do believe that the nativism and racism that Donald Trump ran on in 2016, this idea that America is being overrun by Mexicans and that what we need to do is build a wall to stop the Mexicans coming in, just, it feels such a long time ago. And I just feel like it doesn't have the same resonance today that it did four years ago. And I don't think that like It's very, very hard for me to imagine a bunch of Americans going out shouting, build the wall, build the wall, as like a major political campaign issue. You know, It feels like that was so long ago, and I feel it's kind of weird. If that's the best he has in 2020, I don't think that bodes well for his campaign.
2: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
0: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer. And I, I got people threaten me. I got this and that, but I'm safe.
2: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your
0: podcasts. But let's talk about Wirecard, because this is the craziest and most fascinating story, which has finally come to an end. We really haven't covered Wirecard on Slate Money, which is amazing, because the history of the Wirecard scandal is more or less as long as the history of Slate Money. This goes back to 2015, when a great Financial Times reporter named Dan McCrum started writing about Wirecard for the Financial Times and talking about how it looked like a bit of a fraud, to be honest. And it was always a very sketchy company. Its origins were kind of shady. There was a lot of like laundering money for gambling and pornography and that kind of stuff in its business. But it wound up growing into... One of Germany's largest companies, it joined the DAX 30. It was one of the you know companies in the flagship German stock index. It replaced Deutsche Bank, I think, when Deutsche Bank fell out. It, it became worth more than Deutsche Bank. Not that that's difficult, given how little Deutsche Bank is worth. I'm um, probably worth more than Deutsche Bank. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and all the time, there was this steady drumbeat from the Financial Times and Reuters and various other places saying, look, we're looking into this company. It makes no sense. There were short seller reports. They would go to all of these international locations where Wirecard had big business and massive profits and find that the addresses were just kind of some guy, you know, with a chicken and like there was nothing there. And and all these reports would come out. And the amazing thing was that the... German financial regulators said, oh, that's fake news. We should crack down on those reporters. And the bank analysts at places like Commerzbank, Bank would say, that's fake news. And Wirecard has exonerated itself with this report that it just wrote. And the stock price would just go up. And for those of us in the journalism industry, we all knew that this was going to sort of end with Wirecard going to zero at some point, which it now has, and the CEO is in jail and all of what has been finally revealed. But what's fascinating to me is how long it took and how the authorities, both in terms of the finance world and in terms of the financial regulators, the government in Germany, were willfully blind to what is going on. And I genuinely don't understand this. As a journalist, I just can't put myself in those shoes and see myself saying, oh, yeah, Financial Times is probably just completely false.
1: Well, maybe this is a way we can just rewind for a second and talk about what Wirecard did or purported to do, like what its actual business was of digital payments because in reading up on it, it seems like the thing was it was the only quote unquote digital payments company in Germany and therefore like really important la, 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 la. And that's why Germany was, you know, essentially propping it up by going after the short sellers who tried to alert everyone to the fraud. So can one of you tell me in the plainest of English because I read like they, they even had an illustration at the Wall Street Journal of what Wirecard does and the illustration really doesn't make sense yeah it it was incredibly
0: complex and at one point they bought a bank so they became a bank at some point so that makes it even more confusing in the broadest of terms they were international financial services and payments and banking and that kind of stuff which means anything and nothing more specifically what they did is they processed payments for companies and they actually did have a core business which was real which is you know if you are a german and you go on the internet and you buy a plane ticket then you pay with some kind of mechanism whether it's a bank transfer or a credit card or a debit card or something and that money needs to get moved from your bank account to the airline's bank account and all those tubes that the money moves through Between your bank account and the airline's bank account, that was basically Wirecard's business was moving that money down those tubes.
2: To go back to like why this was allowed to go on for so long and, you know, the kind of willful blindness, it honestly doesn't surprise me at all because Germany has been like really, really intent on trying to develop an actual tech sector and trying to create new companies. And so their kind of fintech sector is very like loosely regulated, you know, really, really encouraged. So, you know, that's kind of number one. And then number two, I mean, Germany is not actually the world's greatest actor when it comes to a lot of their economic policies. I mean, I think there's this kind of myth that Germany is like, oh, you know, they just have this incredibly productive export economy. And that's why they have this massive current account surplus. And they're just so thrifty. That's why, you know, they're the good people in Europe. And it's nonsense. I mean, if if you actually look at their policies that they've had for the past 20 years, it's essentially to allow their own population and the rest of Europe to subsidize their industries. And so honestly, like I'm not at all surprised that when you had a large German company, that kind of the government and the regulators would turn a blind eye. That doesn't, that doesn't shock me at all.
0: But what about the investors? How did the stock price go up? Like when Dan McCrum started writing about this, it was like 20 euros a share. And it went up to like 150 or something over the course of scandal after scandal after scandal. Like sometimes he would write a piece and the stock price would go down. That I mean, come the beginning of 2019, things started getting like really obvious. But against this steady drumbeat of stories and saying there's no there there, what was it that drove the stock price up so much?
2: I mean, that's a good question. Partly it's because a lot of investors are stupid. Partly it's from just like basic momentum trading. Partly it's because, you know, you have Ernst & Young out there being like, oh, no, this company is fine, even though apparently they haven't looked at their, you know, like a lot of their documents for years. You know, you have all of these in theory, you have the German government, you have the regulators, you have the, you know, their other lenders. You have all of these people saying, oh, no, I'm sure that, the Financial Times is just colluding with short sellers. I mean, yes, it's completely illogical, but I can also see why if people are like, well, this thing does just keep going up, so all these people tell us it's fine. It must be
0: fine. But also like and and there's really no evidence that the FT was colluding with short sellers. Oh no, but no, that's a thing. It's ridiculous. If it's they absolutely were, ridiculous. It's not bad. Like this is one of the weird <laughs> things that you hear quite a lot, is that You know, say, you know, Bethany McLean getting a whole bunch of information from short sellers when she exposed what happened to Enron. That was good. Like, working with short sellers is not in and of itself a sign that you are in any way corrupt or reporting anything untrue. I mean, most of the time when journalists work with short sellers, it's because the short sellers have true facts and the journalists are in the business of getting true facts out into the world.
2: The thing with a lot of investors is that once they have decided, especially once a portfolio manager has decided that they want this investment, it literally does not matter what happens. It doesn't matter what you show them. It doesn't matter. They have decided in their mind that this is a good investment. And so they will choose to believe the information that justifies their previous argument. All these investors will tell you they're contrarian investors and, oh, they're so data-driven, and it's nonsense. Like, And so I think that's probably part of this too.
1: People should go and listen to this podcast, Invisibilia. In a recent episode, Hannah Rosen interviews a short seller who was short Wirecard and you know was publishing reports being like hello this is fraud and Wirecard basically hired investigators to I think the word is dox this guy like they published false information about him and rumors he um they took like photographs of him in his home he he moved houses and he went to the police he lives in London to complain about it no one did anything and he was just basically being spied on and I mean it's really wild stuff that this company was doing like if he didn't already think that there was fraud going on the fact that they like sick these like dodgy PIs on him would be like kind of a red
0: flag that's also something that you know it's in the news right now another story in the news eBay. this week is eBay
2: What did eBay do? eBay if i'm not mistaken like hired people to go after like some people who had just like made some comments online They didn't you they know, it was, did it
0: themselves they didn't even hire any third party that's They right, just that's right. there were 6 eBay employees who decided they were going to embark upon this insane campaign against a woman who ran a newsletter that was critical of eBay and they started sending her cockroaches in the mail. They started sending pornography in her name to her neighbor's addresses. They started sending like pig fetuses. They started sending books to the house about how to deal with the death of a spouse. It was really horrible. They tried to put a tracking device on their car and this is eBay. And, you know, we all read the uh, Susan Fowler book about what happened to her yeah. when she, everyone started like following her and taking photographs when she started being critical of Uber. So it is definitely true that what Wirecard did was completely bonkers, but it's also definitely true that this is something that happens over and over again in corporate America, and I'm fascinated by the mechanism by which that happens. Like, in the eBay example... It all seems to go back to, like, one text message from the CEO to his communications chief saying, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. We've really got to, you know, put a stop to this, you know, or or something like that. And then that one text message snowballed into this insanely crazy illegal campaign of harassment. How does that happen?
2: That I just find shocking. Number one, I'm like, where do you get a pig's fetus? Like, I have no, that seems (laughs) odd. But, like, also... Like, how much company loyalty does one have to have <laughs> to, like, do this? Like, it just doesn't. I, yeah, that, I, it, that seems insane to me. Unless it, it seems like there has to be something more going on there. That it can't just have been, like, a few employees who are like, we really, really love eBay.
1: If I'm an investor and the company does something like that, then I say to myself, bad company. Like, no, like, well-run company with, like, a bright future is doing any of that stuff. Like Uber did that stuff to Susan Fowler, you know, following her around and whatever. And I don't think they're doing that well. And now I have bad views about eBay too. So I don't know. Maybe that's an investing strategy. To
0: think about it. Avoid bad companies.
1: Uh, avoid avoid companies bad companies. Bad <laughs> stuff. <laughs> to private. I internet.
0: just, At least I those just. Big I mean, penises. Yeah. To like come full circle here, though. I mean, this is really why short selling is such a horrible, nasty, terrible business to be in. If you looked at Wirecard, you saw that it was a fraud, you knew that it was a fraud, and then you went short when you discovered that it was a fraud, you would probably have lost money. The stock just went up and you would have had to cover that short and you would have lost money. And then at one point, the Germans actually banned short selling in Wirecard. They're like, what well, you have to cover. We're not even giving you any choice. To make money from short selling, you not only need to uncover frauds, you also need to have a really clear thesis for exactly when and how that fraud is going to result in the stock going to zero. And the Wirecard stock did go to zero. It just went to zero five years after all the short sellers realized how bad it was.
1: But they're still getting a better payoff, probably, than the FT journalist who wrote about it, right?
0: Oh, Dan's doing fine. <laughs> Let's have a numbers round. Anna, do you have a number?
2: I do. My number is 7.1 trillion. That is the size of the Fed's balance sheet. And I'm actually saying this because it, went, it actually has gotten smaller for two weeks in a row. And I I think this is kind of interesting because you know what we've really seen with the Fed is that the Fed's words are even more important than anything it does. That a lot of the kind of firepower and all these facilities that it set up, it hasn't even actually had to use that much. I mean, it just even s- kind of started um, like buying you know some corporate bonds. And I just think it's interesting this kind of like just magical ability the Fed has to speak, and then the market acts as though the Fed had actually acted.
0: My number is six million (laughs) and ten six zero 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 one zero is the number of dollars that a chap named peter friedman spent on the guitar that was used by kurt cobain in his mtv unplugged performance which is a new record for the price of a guitar guitars are now worth six million and ten dollars Apparently,
2: why ten? Like, where, where's the ten come from? What,
0: <laughs> yeah, is I'm, that I'm, like, I'm, for the string, I like, was. Like? I'm kind of confused how how like in an auction you're allowed to put bids in with ten dollar increments when you're bidding right. like six million. But evidently, um, presumably, there was an unbid underbidder who bid six million, and he's like, I'll I'll bid six million and <laughs> ten. Ten. <Wow. laughs> Emily, what's your number?
1: My number is one point four billion dollars. That is the amount of money that the Treasury sent out in stimulus checks to dead people. And, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times both like got into a frenzy about this, really hyperventilating about the fact that the Treasury Department um, sent these checks to people who died after they filed taxes in 2019 or 2018. But it's really just as Jordan Weissman wrote in Slate and my colleague Igor wrote at HuffPost and other people pointed out, it's like, not a big deal. Like they were trying to get the money out really fast. The 1.4 billion though sounds like a big number, but it was only 0.4% of the total amount of stimulus money sent out. And um, it's sort of like a rounding error in the name of getting the money out faster and getting the money out faster. We know, as I said earlier, kept people like from starving to death and kept them out of poverty and stimulated the economy, yada, yada, yada. So it's like, no big deal, don't worry about it. But the fact that this is like a big news story is kind of worrying and troublesome and like would make Stephanie Kelton upset, I think.
0: (laughs) It speaks to the fact that no one really understands big numbers. You know yes. like one point four billion dollars is a huge amount of money. Like six hundred billion dollars is a huge amount of money. And then very different amounts of money, but like they're both just big at some point. We are in a world where we have multi-trillion dollar deficits and it's basically impossible to comprehend how big a trillion dollars is, let alone two trillion or three trillion. It's the numbers are so big that everything just says Big amount of money. And so a big mm. amount of money went to dead people. A big amount of money is how much our annual deficit is. And even though they are, you know, probably five orders of magnitude apart, like it's just big amounts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Journalists love. I mean, when you hear a blank went to dead person, you're just like, what? Story. Send a news alert. But <laughs> it's, not, it's not that exciting. We need to stop
0: okay well i think that's it for this week thank you all for listening thank you jessamine molly for producing and thank you for sending the emails in slate money at slate.com we read them all we love them do keep them coming and we will talk to you next week on slate money